we've been in a study the last couple weeks called Storyline. And, and here's the, the kind of the main idea of this series, that I want you to see the big story of the Bible, that the Bible is one big story so that we can better understand the little stories in the Bible. Um, if we have a better idea of how our Bible fits together, the 66 books that are in it, then we can really be equipped as we hopefully are reading the word for ourselves to better understand the Bible. How many of you would agree that sometimes the Bible can be difficult to understand? Uh, you know what? Peter said that sometimes the stuff Paul wrote is hard to understand. So if Peter could say that, we all should be humble enough to admit that sometimes the Bible, we need help learning it. And so what our idea has been, number one, the first week we showed you that Jesus and the apostles saw the Bible as one story. Remember we saw that? That Jesus preached himself on the road to Emmaus from the law, the prophets, and the writings, which was shorthand of referring to the whole Old Testament. And then we saw how Paul preached Christ as well from all of the Old Testament. He said, all scripture is given to us by God, by inspiration, and is profitable, all of it. All of it's profitable for doctrine. All of it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, okay? So we saw that in week number one. Last week, we talked about the theme of what? How many of you can remember the theme we talked about last week? I know one of you does. Don't make me waste time waiting on you. What did we talk about last week? What was the theme we talked about last week? No. <laughs> well, that was Sunday morning service, so fair enough. But Sunday school. Sid, you looked in your notes? Sacrifice, right? We talked about sacrifice and how that theme, we all know, not only has continuity, Jesus is, is fulfilling the Old Testament sacrifices, but we also saw how that theme shows us that there is discontinuity. There is a difference between offering a lamb and trusting in the blood of Christ, Right? So what I wanted to do last week is I wanted to show you that that same template of how the theme of sacrifice, we see its fulfillment in Christ, but we also see how some of it changes in Christ. Rather than offering a sacrifice every year, we see that Jesus was offered once and for all, right? And, and then rather than offering an animal, we're trusting by faith in the blood of Christ. What I want you to see is that every theme we're going to talk about is going to have that same template applied to it. This morning, we're going to cover the theme of covenant, okay? And I want you to see the same things happening. This is going to be a two-parter, and I'm worried I won't even get part one done. That's why we're doing prayer requests tonight. Um, but I want you to think about covenant this way. Now, some of you, maybe it's been a while since you've been in school, um, but I want you to think about when you were in school, you, I feel like every school has that one teacher that's known for hard classes, right? I can think back in high school, uh, Mr. Esty, I think I've told you about him, the eccentric history teacher I had. Uh, he was known for hard classes. When I was in college, in, in Bible college, the guy who was known for that class, he had two or three classes, his name was Rick Williams. Rick Williams taught a freshman class on the Gospels. And I actually had the textbook up there. I meant to bring it down and show you. But he gave us this textbook it's called Four Portraits, One Jesus, and each week we would have a, a chapter or two out of that textbook that we would read and then do a test on. 
And I remember that when I got that first assignment, you know, as a overzealous freshman in Bible college, I was pouring myself into that book. I could literally show you four different colors of highlighter, starring things, getting ready for that test. I spent a long time reading those chapters, maybe even read it twice, I can't remember. And I remember that all of us came to that first test on chapters one through three. And I put so much effort and I was used to getting good grades in high school and I show up and I take this test and I scored, if I remember right, a high C or a low B, which for some of you, that's like, that's not terrible grade, but I put a lot of effort. I deserved a better grade than that. And I remember that really most of the class had that poor grade on the test. And I remember that our professor, Rick Williams, reminded us of the reading strategy he gave us for these assignments for the very first day of class. And here's what he told us. He said, some of you didn't do well on this test because you didn't do what I said. You just read the chapter, highlighted what you thought. He said, here's how you need to read these chapters. He said, I want you to, on a separate piece of paper, copy down the main headings and the subheadings. Well, that seems dumb, right? I mean, how many of you are like, if you were a student, you're like, I'm not doing that, right? He said, write down the main headings and subheadings. Just copy them. And then he said, what I want you to do is I want you to read, before you read the whole chapter, read the first and the last sentences of each paragraph. Okay. So write down the main headings, just copy them on a separate piece of paper, read the first sentence and the last sentence, and then go through and read the whole chapters. And what was amazing to me, I I mean, I'm thinking in that moment, I'm not going to get a better grade on my test just because I read two sentences in each paragraph twice. Come on. But when we started employing that reading strategy, I realized that the next test, I got a much, much better grade. I got an A. Why? Because here's what what Rick was teaching us. That we understand what we're reading better when we pay attention to the development of the author's ideas. Okay? Now, here's what I'm trying to emphasize to you. That when I read that textbook, I was reading it looking for what stuck out to me. But when I started reading the textbook based on what was important to the author, I actually understood it better. And I think many of us make a similar mistake when we read our Bibles. We make a similar mistake. We read our Bibles looking at what sticks out to us, which is great. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But the mistake we make is we never ask the question, if our Bibles had an outline, what would the main headings be? If the story of God's word had an outline, what would the main headings be? You might write this sentence down on your handout because in a week from now, you're going to be like, why do we have this whole chart? Because of this sentence, that's why. So I would write it down. If the Bible had an outline, what would the main headings be? What I want to show you this week and next week is that the best way to understand the Bible's outline is to understand the Bible's story in terms of covenant. In terms of covenant, okay? Now, there's a lot of different ways people might, might try and outline the Bible. And I'm not just talking about the con- table of contents because we know this, that multiple books are really filling in one or two stories, right? There's a lot of ways people would maybe give you other ways to view the outline of the Bible, Okay, the reason we're going to look at covenant 
is because that seems to be how the divine author views the unfolding story of the Bible. I'm going to show you that today. There are other terms people use that have a lot of overlap to this idea. Um, Some people talk about dispensations. Um, I don't think that's a totally unfaithful way to view scripture. I don't personally prefer using that term. Number one, it's not really a Bible term um, other than one verse, which doesn't mean the same thing as dispensationalists make it mean. And it doesn't, I think, fully explain how the Old and the New Testament connect together. Dispensations will say that there's stuff in the Old Testament that's totally unfulfilled still. Yet the idea of the covenants, uh, which is how scripture views itself, is that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. We, we saw in the first week, if you weren't here, go back and listen to that online, that Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of all of it. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So we're gonna talk about this unfolding set of promises. So what is a covenant? Because we don't use this term a lot. Really, maybe just in weddings, right? What is a covenant? You might write this definition down. It's a set of binding promises that two or more parties make to one another. Like marriage, right? Marriage is a covenant. So a covenant is a set of binding promises that two or more parties make to one another. Okay, so today, again, I I told you at the beginning of the series, I trust that some of you have been safe for 50 years. You You can handle some meat, okay? So this might be a little bit more academic, but I'm going to help you understand the importance of this because I don't want to just teach you information. That's not what I'm about. Um, I want to teach you stuff that's going to help you grow as a Christian. And so just trust that from experience, I know that this has helped me grow in reading my Bible better. And I think it'll help you grow too. So we're going to march through these covenants. There's six of them. And we're going to talk about the last one next week. There's the Adamic covenant based on the name Adam, right? It's God's covenant with Adam. And then we're going to talk about God's covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and the new covenant, which is through Jesus Christ. Okay? So if covenant is the Bible's main outline for its story, then it only makes sense that this story outline starts in the first part of the Bible, right? In Genesis chapter 1, in fact. Now, the first word covenant is going to show up in Genesis 6, and I'm not going to go into the academic understanding of this, but basically when God makes a covenant with Noah. He uses a term, established is how it's translated in our Bibles, that says God is renewing a pre-existing covenant, which tells us that there was something going on that was covenantal with Adam. And I want you to see this in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Remember, what is a covenant? It's a set of binding promises. God is saying, I'm going to promise you something. And then in return, most of the time, God is asking us to be promising him something in return. I want you to look at Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, and see what God is promising, the privileges that he is giving to mankind. Notice a couple key ideas here. We talked about this in our Genesis series. He says, let us make man in our image. Do you remember us talking about that a couple weeks ago in Genesis? How many of you remember what it meant when God said, I'm gonna make man in my image? Just in your own words, what, what would you say that, meant. Do you remember that? What does it mean for God to make us in his image? All right. This is sad. (laughs) It means this. This is why we teach on things twice sometimes. Image is talking about God giving Adam kingly status, right? So in, in In older cultures, they're saying, 
I am the image of a God. I'm his king on earth. And then likeness was talking about Adam as God's son, right? Because that's the same term he uses in the genealogy in chapter number five. So here's what God is saying to Adam. I'm going to, for no, you haven't earned this. You don't deserve this. I'm gonna make you a king over all of my creation. Remember, he has dominion. He's gonna rule and subdue. So I'm gonna make you a king and I'm gonna make you my son, right? In fact, chapter five says explicitly, I think it's chapter five, that Adam was the son of God. So here God is promising to Adam, I'm gonna make you king, I'm gonna make you my son, and then God says that he's going to bless them. Look at this, verse number 28. It says, and God blessed them. And that word might sound familiar because that's exactly what God tells Abraham he's gonna do, remember? And I will bless you, and those who bless you will be blessed. Remember that from Abraham's covenant? We'll see that in just a few moments. So God is giving them privileged covenantal blessings, and he's giving them requirements, responsibilities, right? Adam's responsibility was to be fruitful, to multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it. And as we talked about last week, did Adam fulfill his end of the bargain? Peace? No, he didn't, right? He ate the the fruit. He didn't subdue creation. He let the serpent subdue him, right? So Adam failed, and because of that, Adam broke the image of God. His relationship with God as his father was severed. He was cast out of the garden. We talk about that here this morning in our morning service. And then here are the other privileges, right? God took man, remember this? And we said we put him in the garden. That's God's grace. God's bringing him into relationship with himself. And here's the other command he's asking in return in this covenant. What's the command? It's the famous one, right? Don't eat of that tree. So what does Adam do? He disobeys. The covenant's broken. And so as history goes on, instead of filling the earth with God's glory, what happens? The earth is filled under, when we start talking about the Noahic covenant, the earth is filled, I love, uh, it's interesting to me in Genesis 6, uh, it says earlier on in the chapter that the earth was filled not with God's glory, but with violence. Violence filled the earth. And there's all sorts of sinful things going on. And so God says, I'm gonna destroy man. Look at Genesis 6 on the screen. He says, I'm gonna destroy man. I'm gonna judge the earth. And how many of you remember how God judges the earth in Noah's lifetime? How does he judge the earth? A flood, right? He's gonna destroy him. Why? Because um, mankind, instead of filling the earth with God's glory, he's filled it with violence. So God's idea is I'm gonna start over. I'm I'm gonna have a new Adam. And his name is Noah. Now, what's interesting, God enters in this covenant with Noah, and we'll talk about that in a minute, where that term shows up. And we have to ask ourselves, did Noah have this covenant with God because of who he was or because of God's grace? Both, interestingly. It says that Noah found grace, of course. Look at the next verse. Noah, why did God enter a covenant with Noah and not some other dude? Because Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. He wasn't sinless, but he was upright. He was mature spiritually. And Noah walked with God. That reminds us of Enoch, right? Just the chapter prior. So God is now calling out a specific person. And you'll notice that in all these covenants, there's one person that's a mediator of the covenant. He's calling out Noah because Noah is walking with God, but Noah still needs God's grace because he's not Jesus. And we find out later, he's definitely not perfect right? He messes up big time. 
And God exercises his judgment, right? He floods the earth. All of humanity is destroyed except for Noah and his family. And notice what God says after the flood in Genesis 9. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah. And he gives him a token, a sign. You'll see that on your chart. Each covenant comes with a sign. Like a, a testimony, a contract, so to speak, made visible, almost like an ordinance, right? And he says, here's the token, the covenant. I'm going to set my bow in the cloud. Now, what was God's promise to Noah? God's promise to Noah, if you look at next verse, is that I will, look at verse number 12 or 15, I will no more flood and destroy all of the earth. And so God signifies that covenant with Noah through what? A rainbow. Now, you notice your Bible doesn't say the word rainbow. It just says bow. When you hear the word bow, what do you think of? Not a rainbow. A bow and arrow. What does a bow and arrow do? Come on, Sid. Hunters, kill. Yeah, right? So why is God setting a bow in the clouds? It's as if he's hanging up his weapon of war. And rather than pointing it down at man, the rainbow points up at God. He's hung it up. He's not at war with his creatures. And here's what the covenant with Noah does. It allows earth to continue going on. Because we all know this. If Noah started... It would have been the same story over and over and over again, right? It's not like Genesis 6 was worse than it is today. It's just as bad. And so God creates this promise, this covenant with Noah. And he says, I'm not going to destroy all of you. And there's no obligation on Noah's end. God just says, unconditionally, I'm not going to wipe out all of the earth. Because all the earth deserves to be judged by God. Somebody testify to that. Our sin deserves God's judgment. And his justice. And so as God sets that bow in the cloud, it's a sign of that covenant, which is between me and every living creature. So God has this contract with all the earth that I will not destroy you because of your sin. Okay? So that's the Noahic covenant. Now, what do we learn from the Noahic covenant? Some of you are like, well, why am I learning this? Think about this. Practically speaking, what does Noah's story teach us? Friend, listen, look up here. It teaches us that fresh starts don't do much. They don't do much. If you think that turning your life around is just by starting something fresh, a new year, a new school year, a new start, friend, fresh starts won't change you. We need something deeper God started fresh with all of humanity. And within moments, Noah had messed up and had sinned in the same way Adam did. Adam sinned with the fruit of the tree. Adam was, or Noah was drunk with the fruit of the vine. And we see the same thing being replayed in Noah's story. It shows us that we need God and his grace more than we need a fresh start. And we learn that by God's grace, every moment we are given by God is, is a gift from him because he could destroy the earth if he wanted to. Yet he's made a covenant, a promise to preserve us. And then Genesis 11 shows how all the world has literally formed itself in rebellion against God. 
they build a tower, right? And the tower is so that they could be like God. It's very similar to what Adam and Eve were trying to do, right? They want to be like gods. And here in the Tower of Babel, all of humanity is pitching in together. And we're going to build this tower that goes all the way up to God. And we will be like him. We will make our name great rather than his name great. And so the earth is even more filled with wickedness. And so what does God do? Rather than, rather than establishing a covenant with all creation, he narrows down. He says, I'm going to save all of creation through a family. Through a family. And so he makes the covenant with Abraham. We're in Genesis 12. We've got the whole rest of the Old Testament to go. Keep plugging with me. So he calls out this guy, Abraham. Now, Abraham is interesting. Because just like Noah, we have to ask ourselves, did Abraham deserve to have a special relationship with God? Well, no. Abraham was in a different country And he was in his father's house, and chapter 11 shows us that they were in a pagan land, or of the Chaldees. So here's a dude, Abraham, who's a pagan, worshiping idols, far away from God geographically, and for no other reason than God's grace, God calls him out. By the way, God is still calling people out by his grace, undeservingly. And so what does God promise to Abraham? Now, now let let me also say this, that Abraham, though he didn't deserve God's grace, we see in Genesis 15 that Abraham was not just some random dude who didn't care about God. He's, it says in Genesis 15, I believe verse 6, that he believed God and God counted it unto him as what? Righteousness. So Abraham's different than the rest of humanity because he's having faith in Jehovah God. The rest of humanity is rebelling against God. So he has entered into this relationship by God's grace and through faith, just like Noah did. And here he is, and God calls him out, and God promises Abraham three things. This is on your handout. He promises him, number one, land. So he says, Abraham, get out of your country, from your kindred, to your father's house, and unto a land I'll show thee. Okay? And then he says, Secondly, the blank is seed. God promises him seed. That word's used in Genesis 17. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants. So, so God promises Abraham land, the promised land. And that promise forms the backdrop of all of the Torah and much of the Old Testament. God also promises Abraham family. Seed, many descendants, and he'll expound on this promise later in Genesis, right? He's going to tell Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants that they're going to be like what? What? The stars and the sand. It's a lot of family, y'all. That's not just three kids. That's a lot of family. A lot of little ones. A lot of grandkids running around, right? So he says, I'm going to give you land, seed, and here's the next one. Blessing. Blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Now remember, who else did God bless in Genesis? One. He blessed two. Adam. See, sometimes we we read the Bible, Genesis 12, like it just pops out of nowhere. No, no, my friend. This is a development of what God was trying to do. God wanted to bless the whole earth through Adam. 
But Adam failed. He wanted to bless the whole earth through Noah, and Noah failed. So now God is going to bless Abraham to accomplish the same purpose he was trying to accomplish in Adam. Here's what you need to write down or think about when it comes to the covenants. We have to understand this, is that sometimes we view these as separate things, but they're a development. God is adding to and expanding and coloring in the lines, so to speak, of his promises that he's made. Each covenant is just adding detail to what God was doing in the other ones. And they're growing and expanding and filling in detail and color till they're all in technicolor, HD, high definition in Jesus Christ. He's gonna fulfill all of them. So God promises Abraham blessing. What is this blessing? Well, clearly if we read Genesis, it seems to have something to do with riches. Financial gain, right? But it's also more than that because originally that word was used to be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them so they could be fruitful and multiply. So there's something more to it. It's just that God is with them. It's his presence. His presence brings blessing. And then he says through Abraham's blessing with God, God will pour out as an overflow of Abraham's blessing onto the rest of the nations, right? Look at verse number two, or sorry, verse number three. He says, I'm gonna bless them that bless you. So if people are, favorable towards Abraham, God's going to bless them. Well, that's interesting. And then consequently, he's also going to curse them that curse him, right? And then he says, look at this, all the family in you. Now, we got to ask, what does that mean? Well, frankly, Genesis doesn't really tell us. It gives us shadows as all the earth comes to a grand, great, great grandson, of Abraham, his name is Joseph, and all the earth is receiving food from the hand of Joseph. It's not quite there. So God is gonna fill this in later. So here are the three blessings. Land, covenant blessings, land, seed, blessing. Now we're on the mosaic, okay? So God says to Abraham, I'm gonna make you a big family. But notice in Abraham's thing, God promises not just to make his family big, he promises to make of Abraham a what? A great nation. Well, at the end of Genesis, not to spoil the story, Abraham is no nation. He has 70 family members. Is that a nation? No. He, ha- he owns one cave. Not very blessed, I mean, in the world's eyes. He owns one cave, and he's got a, a respectable amount of riches, right? You get the story of Lot. So then God begins to form a nation in the book of Exodus. God continues to multiply and bless the seed of Abraham. And at the end, in the middle of the book of Exodus, we see this large nation, millions of people leaving the nation of Egypt to form their own nation. And God is going to create a covenant with them. God is going to use a nation to be blessed and subsequently bless the earth, all of the earth in the same way he wanted to with Adam, Noah, and Abraham. And it's that backdrop of his promise to Abraham that he's gonna give Abraham a piece of land, right? And that's why God is always trying to bring them out of Egypt into a specific land because he's faithful to Abraham's promise. Abraham didn't have any conditions on his covenant. God just unconditionally blessed him with land, seed, and blessings. So God is going to be faithful to that, and he's going to give that land to the nation of Israel through the Mosaic Covenant. And God enters into this covenant 
He uses this term in Exodus 19. And I want you to notice that God is calling all the children of Israel into this covenant. So the mediator of this covenant is not just Moses, but it's the nation. It's the nation that God is going to be dealing with, and they have certain representatives, priests and whatnot. So God is calling this nation into a covenant with him. And then notice that the basis of this promise was not their goodness, but it was God's grace. Look at the end of this verse on the screen. He says, here's what I did to you. I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. You know what he's saying there? You don't deserve this. I brought you out by my grace. And then here's what he says. I'm gonna make a covenant with you. Now here's the question we gotta ask. As God forms this new covenant with the nation of Israel, is it conditional or unconditional? Conditional or unconditional? What, what you got? Conditional? Any other different opinions? Well, I think it's both. His relationship with them was unconditional. And then we, we see that over and over again, right? He makes a covenant, gives them the book of the covenant, and as Moses coming down the mountain to give them the tablets of the covenant, they like totally forsook God and were worshiping a golden calf. It was so much for conditional, right? But yet God still keeps them in with him. But notice that he says, if you will obey and keep. So the covenant is unconditional, but the blessings of the covenant are conditional. And Deuteronomy 28, you can read that later, shows us that the blessing of the covenant that was conditional was the land. What does God say? When you start turning your back on me, specifically with the Sabbath, which is the sign of the covenant, he says, I'm gonna take you out of the land. It was conditional, but yet they were his people unconditionally. And God says, I'm gonna form unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, okay? Now look at Genesis 31. What is their covenant responsibility? What is the covenant sign? Their job is to keep the Sabbath. Now there's a whole lot more laws than just keeping the Sabbath, but that was the main one. That was the one, just as when Abraham was called by God, the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Who are those people who are gonna mark themselves out as part of God's family that would be blessed? It would be those whose head of household was circumcised, right? And so now God is forming a covenant with a nation. Who are gonna be those people that God is going to call his people? It's not just their Jewishness, friend. It was un non-Jews could enter into this covenant even back in the Old Testament. The way that they entered was not just circumcision, but by keeping the Sabbath. We saw that last week we talked about Passover. Non-Jews could partake of the Passover. They just had to enter into the covenant by circumcision and keeping of the Sabbath. So God is marking out those who are his people by their observance of the Sabbath and by the heads of households being circumcised. That's his people, right? And then he says that if you don't keep the Sabbath, look at this wording, then you're gonna be cut off. What's he saying? That's how you mark yourself out as one of my people. Those who keep the Sabbath, my people. Those who don't keep the Sabbath, cut off from my people. Now we gotta ask again, is this conditional or unconditional? Both. They weren't his people by their righteousness. God called them out, they didn't deserve it, 
their wilderness wanderings proved that they were terrible, rotten covenant people, but he had called himself, and here's what he's saying. You mark yourself out as a covenant member of my family by your obedience to my commands. Doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus said? By your fruit, what? You should know them. Jesus says, you want to know who's part of the new covenant? It's by their obedience and by their fruit. That's how we mark ourselves out from the world. Not only that, but by baptism and the Lord's Supper. But here's the problem with the Mosaic covenant. You have people who are called to obey God's laws who don't have a new heart for God. The Old Testament's gonna show us that over and over and over again. And so here's how the story's gonna go. In the book of Judges, you've got these people who don't obey. And what happens every time that they fall into sin in the book of Judges? They start losing the land, right? The whole book of Judges, here's the plot. It's real simple. People sin, enemies come, God raises up a deliverer, enemies go away, they get the land back, People sin, enemies come, they take away the land, and over and over and over and over again. The book of 1 Samuel is the same thing, right? What are the main enemies in the book of 1 Samuel? Think David and Goliath. The nation of what? The Philistines. What's the big deal about the Philistines? They are coming and taking God's land. And the whole problem in all of this is that the people weren't obeying God and weren't taking the land. He gave them all of the land in the book of Joshua. It's very explicit if you read it that Joshua got all of the land. He got it all. But that the people keep messing up by sinning against God. And so these enemies come and take it back. So as you're reading the story of the Bible, you're in the midst of the Mosaic Covenant. Now you're understanding that when these people are giving up the land, it's not just like, oh, these people are warring. No, they're unfaithful to their covenant. And God is allowing covenant curses and disobedience and, and, and judgment to come upon them because of their failure to obey the covenant. And over and over and over and over, they get ransacked by enemies. And so the people start crying out, God, the reason we're losing is because we don't have a what? We don't have a king. Now you read 1 Samuel, when this king talk goes on, it's kind of confusing because you're like, was the king an invention of the people? Or was it God's idea? Well, you, you start to think it's the people because they're, they're, but the problem with the people is they're saying, we want a king like the nations. If you look in Deuteronomy, God had laws for a king, like already built in. It's like he planned on it. It's like, listen, as these covenants develop, here's what we have to understand. None of this stuff is new. It's all part of God's eternal plan. God had planned for a king before the people knew they needed it. And God was planning for a better savior even when he was forging the Mosaic Covenant. It's not like, this is why I get frustrated with certain ways of outlining the Bible. It's like, oh, I guess man messed up, so God's gonna start all over again. It's like he didn't see it coming. New way of salvation. No, no, no. God saw it all coming. He's building, he's filling in detail. So now there's this king in the Davidic Covenant. And this promise to build a king is in 2 Samuel Seven. If you read 2 Samuel 7, verse number one, what's interesting is that when David is about to enter into this covenant with God, it says explicitly in verse number one that the land had rest from all of their enemies. Meaning that for once, the nation of Israel had all their land and they didn't have enemies. 
And so David's celebrating by building himself a big old mansion. And so the nation of Israel, which is now very prosperous because they've whooped everybody else around them, they're going to build David the nicest house you could get in ancient Israel. I mean, it probably isn't as nice as the mansions these days, but it's, it's probably pretty spectacular. And as David is visiting this construction side of his house, he starts thinking, I don't know if I deserve a big house like this. When, when I go and worship God, I'm walking into a tent. So he's like, I, I want to build God a house. And if you read 2 Samuel 7, you think God is like rebuking David. But God actually enters into a promise with David. He says, David, you can't build me a house because your hands are filled with blood. I'm going to have your son do it. But God's not mad with David. Because God establishes a new covenant with David. And he starts filling in detail that the salvation of the world, the blessing to the nations, is not going to come through the nation anymore. Because we saw how that worked out in the book of Judges. God is going to use a single figure, a king, And God would bless that king, and he would be in a special relationship with that king, and it would be that king that would be the way of blessing the nations. You ever wonder why Jesus and the Old Testament talk about the story with Solomon, and the queen of Sheba comes and visits Solomon and is like, wow, dude, you're loaded. This is great. That's not about Solomon's riches. That's a preview of how Solomon, the king, was blessing the nations. So God enters into this covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, 9. Notice how it sounds like Abraham's covenant. Look at this. Does that sound familiar? Great name, right? Look at verse number 10. He's going to appoint a place. What is that talking about? What's that place? The lands, right? So God's reestablishing. He's filling in detail what he was saying to Abraham. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna give you a place, right? I'm gonna give you a great nation, a great name, which is talking about the blessing. And then God is going to, in verse number 11 through 12, through David, he starts talking about these same ideas, right? He starts talking about a house or a seed. It's a play on words. He's not talking about a building, y'all. David already had a house. He's talking about a family, a seed. He's gonna build David a house. And then He'll talk about these descendants, right? Thy fathers, thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And here's what God is promising to David. David, I'm gonna give you a place, the land, and I'm gonna give you descendants, and I'm going to make sure that your descendants are always on the throne. Now, you understand ancient monarchies, you know that's kind of rare. Three, four generations would go by and someone would rise up and overthrow The kingdom, that's the number one thing most outgoing kings were really paranoid about. Like, who's going to kill my son as soon as I die and take over the kingdom? They didn't have freestanding elections, y'all. That's not how it worked back then. But notice this, that God enters into a special relationship with David that he doesn't have with anyone else. He promises that, that this son, who comes from David's house or his lineage, will sit on the throne of his kingdom forever. Now use your mind. No human can sit on a throne forever. And then God says, this, this, this guy who's gonna sit on the throne forever, God says, I'm gonna be his father. 
and he will be my son. Now, is God talking about a king coming from the loins of David, or is he talking about Jesus? Both. Because you know what he says? The son, if he commits sin, well, that's not Jesus, right? Count him out. I'm going to chasten him and with the rod of men and the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before thee. In thine house, David's lineage, David's kingdom would be established forever. So God says, everyone that sits on this throne, they're gonna be my son, and I promise your kids will be on the throne. But here's the condition. If they start messing up and committing iniquity, I'm not gonna handle that. I'm gonna chasten him. And now you start realizing why the biblical authors start writing the stories of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, which really all of those stories are about good king, bad king. Good king, blessed, bad king, chastened. Over and over and over and over and over again. And they're all the sons of David. And then you start realizing why the nation of Israel gets a little bit worried when they start taking into Babylon. They have no king, they have no land, they have no temple, and they're certainly not blessed. And so as we read the Old Testament, we recognize that God is unfolding this series of promises to his people, and each covenant is just building on one another. And so we will get to the new covenant, how it fulfills all these next week. But here's, I want to give you a couple practical thoughts of application if I have time. Here's God's promise to David. He established his throne forever. Here's why this is helpful to you. Okay, and we'll, we'll really tie it all together next week, so I hope you'll be patient with me. It's a lot of information. But the reason I want you to understand this is as you're reading your Bibles, look at your chart and notice that each covenant has a, has a mediator, a head of the covenant. And so as you're reading your Old Testament, you're like, what on earth do I make of this story with Joab? Jehoiakim. Well, what will help you read your Bible is look down that chart and notice how all those are pointing forward to Jesus. So when you see Adam and you hear me preach and I keep equating Adam and Jesus, I'm not just making this up, y'all. That's how the Bible sees it. We'll talk about that next week. When you see Noah offering a sacrifice to appease God's wrath, you read that in Genesis 9 and you're not, as a, as a Christian, you're saying, wow, this, this is showing me something about Jesus. When you see Abraham and he's offering He's blessing the nations in these small, tiny ways of the Old Testament. You're looking at that, and you're, as a Christian, you're reading that, not just thinking about a, a family, the Jews, and material blessing of the nations. No, as a Christian, we read that, and we look forward to the blessing that would come through the seed of Abraham. Matthew 1 makes that point, that Jesus was the seed of Abraham, that Abraham's blessing to the nations would not come through riches. It would come through Jesus Christ. And so as we read about Abraham, we say, hey, here's Jesus blessing the nations. But then when we read about Abraham's failures, we start saying, well, I'm sure glad that it's Jesus and not Abraham, right? Abraham's a liar. He's a manipulator. He gives away his wife to the king of Egypt twice. What kind of guy is that? When you read about David and his, and his uh, victories and all these different things, and he's conquering his enemies. It's supposed to point us forward to Jesus and his victory that was accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. But when you read about David and these other, these other kings' moral failures, it points you to the fact that God was always working towards a better covenant head. He never intended to establish a kingdom. 
He was, he was after an eternal kingdom that was far greater than one little nation on the map. And it points us forward to the perfect king, Jesus, who came and died for our sins. And one day he will rule and reign in righteousness, the book of Revelation says. So as you read your Bibles, you look forward. As you see these covenant signs, again, you can't just over-symbolize the Bible, but you can look at circumcision and, and the Sabbath. Well, what do I make of that as a Christian? Well, that should be pointing forward to the ways that God sets us apart as his covenant people with baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's discontinuity, they're not the same, but it should point forward to that as we read these things. What do we learn from covenant history? We learn this, God is faithful. God is faithful. God was always delivering on his word. He never lets us down. Even when we have a nation that has no king and no land for a long, long time. We'll find out next week how God was so faithful by bringing a new king, Jesus Christ, who would form a new seed, not Jews, but as, Mo, as Paul talks about, Gentiles and Jews grafted in. He's broken down the wall of partition and he's made one new family of Jews and Gentiles. And that's how you got stars of the sky and sand of the sea because you got a whole lot of Christians throughout history that make up this seed of Abraham. And you've got a far greater blessing than material stuff coming from Jesus. You've got spiritual blessings in Christ I hope you'll come next week and tune in. I, I hope that God has taught you something this week. But let's pray and thank him for his promises to us. Father, we thank you for your word. That God, if we just look at the terms your word uses, we can understand how the story fits together. I pray, God, that you'd have helped me to be clear today. And I pray, God, that as we come back next week, that our love and our understanding of Jesus will be so enriched